Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's Thursday, November 9th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The pandas are gone. China reclaimed their bamboo-guzzling wards, and NBC Channel 4 DC described the emotions. Hard to believe they are not coming back, but we did get to catch one final glimpse of them before they left. It's almost as if the DC pandas know just how much we'll miss them. Here's Mei Zhang peeking out right on cue to say goodbye as they boarded their long flight back to China. We've known this day was coming, but that didn't make it any easier. So many of us have watched Mei Zhang, Tian Tian, and their little cub, Xiao Qi Ji, grow up over the years. Now, I'm not saying that America gives more of a damn about the pandas than the Uyghurs, but America gives more of a damn about the pandas than the Uyghurs. Wait, what are the Uyghurs? Are those those adorable little forest deer? We could get into them, right? No, that's not what the Uyghurs are. And no local newscast has ever included interviews like this about a Uyghur. It's a bittersweet day for the National Zoo and for the community. I thought we'd be able to see him today. And when we found out they were leaving today, we missed him and we just saw the FedEx truck leaving and that was it. The panda exhibit now empty for the first time in 23 years. That was from WUSA Channel 9. All the local DC news stations were tracking the pandas' flights like they do Santa on Christmas Eve. With one difference, Santa can mate in captivity without the help of staff monitoring his urine and lessons from attendance. Look, the pandas are, I guess, cute. I'll admit they're cute. They're certainly an enrapturing cultural product from China. I do think it was weird that Mi Young asked visitors to download all their personal data and enable tracking before she was viewed. That seems excessive. On a positive note, pandas no longer have endangered status. They're vulnerable, but then again, aren't we told we all should be? Chinese officials are considering introducing them back into the wild, where they will be free to live lives of their own choosing, away from zoo-like surveillance and government interference, unlike the Uyghurs, or really anyone else in China for that matter. On the show today, the second Republican debate. Guess who called who scum? But first, we've talked a lot on this show about COVID and the policies around COVID. And one concept that comes up a lot is herd immunity. I think in the beginning, it took officials in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places down a wrong path. But now in retrospect, maybe some of the ideas of some of the people who were advocating for herd immunity, maybe they've been borne out. Oh, not so, says my next guest, Dr. Jonathan Howard. He's been very public and very vocal, 
pushing back from anyone, medical professional or otherwise, who advocated anything close to a herd immunity, no lockdown, no shutdown policy. Jonathan Howard's book is called We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of COVID. Dr. Jonathan Howard up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We Want Them Infected is the new book by Dr. Jonathan Howard, who was on the front line, still is, of fighting COVID. He's an associate professor of neurology and psychiatry at NYU Langone Health, chief of neurology at Bellevue Hospital. The subtitle tells you what the gist, hello, ding, copyright, of the book is, how the failed quest for herd immunity led doctors to embrace the anti-vaccine movement and blinded Americans to the threat of COVID. There's a lot there. I've co co-signed to much of it, but I have some questions about others. Dr. Howard, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate being here. So on this show, I've talked to David Zweig and other journalists and other doctors about questions of kids and schooling and masking. And underlying all this was an early call or an early appeal to herd immunity. And even if, if uh, my viewers recall what the Great Barrington Declaration was, which now gets cited as an early clarion call to not close down schools, for instance, even if there are some elements of that that years later turned out to be appealing, it should be noted that this was all based on the idea that we should allow herd immunity to take hold, to get infected. So let's talk about the science. Was this, at the time, knowing what we knew then, was this at all a plausible uh, avenue for deliverance from this pandemic? Well, we don't have to speak hypothetically. Nowhere in the world has achieved herd immunity through to COVID through the mass infection of unvaccinated children and young people, which was the plan. And the title of the book is to be taken very literally. This is a quote from Dr. Paul Alexander, who worked uh, in the Trump administration on July 4th, uh, 2020, before anyone was vaccinated. He sent this memo, which uh, our email, which got uh, released, uh, saying we want them infected. We want to uh, it spread the virus widely in the hopes that one infection would lead to permanent immunity and that by spreading the virus, you would paradoxically get rid of the virus. So we don't have to speak hypothetically. It didn't work. Well, I mean, did we really try it? 
there were there were lockdowns, there were mitigation efforts. It seems like we didn't actually try to get everyone infected. Well, everyone's been infected now and we don't have herd immunity. So there are very few people who have not been exposed to the virus at this point in the pandemic. Yet, as we are recording this on September 15th, cases and hospitalizations are increasing. And we do have herd immunity at present for diseases like chicken pox and measles, meaning an unvaccinated baby, babies don't receive the MMR vaccine until they're one years old, can engage with society without a guarantee that they're going to be exposed to measles, which is not the case for COVID. So sometimes people say that we did not try the Great Barrington Declaration, although this idea presupposes that every young person would have been willing to expose themselves to the virus on October 4th, 2020, before they were vaccinated, uh, uh, which was not the case. So young people decided voluntarily to, to, to get vaccinated before they encountered the virus. And, and, and it also required politicians at every step of the way to be on board with the plan. So it was kind of an impossible plan, and which allowed them to then say, hey, exactly what you said, hey, we never really tried my plan, even though it was an impossible plan. No, but I want to step back and just take me through the science. Are there infectious? We know there are infectious diseases in which herd immunity does protect everyone, even if there's a small percentage of the population who doesn't get um, inoculated. Measles is one. Once you eradicate this um, to such a degree through, through immunization, uh, herd immun immunity takes hold. Is it the case that there are some infectious diseases where this just doesn't work? Or is it more subtle? Are there wrinkles to that? Yeah, so, so we've never achieved herd immunity to a virus through the mass infection of unvaccinated people. The main problem being newborns don't arrive with herd immunity. In order for us to achieve herd immunity, a virus or a vaccine has to lead to long-lasting immunity, which unfortunately and obviously is not the case for this virus. You know, we all know many people, probably most of people listening have been infected two or three times by now. And so it's a lot of people uh, suspect that we will never achieve herd immunity to this virus, at least with our current technology. I don't want to speak about the future. I'm always optimistic that smart scientists can come up with a better vaccine that leads to more permanent immunity. Uh, but with a virus uh, and a vaccine that our immune system just wanes, uh, herd immunity is kind of a unicorn or pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, we don't have herd immunity with the flu, right? That's an infectious disease. And the main reason, well, you tell me, is that there are variants in this, uh, and COVID acts more like the flu than it does like measles. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so the flu mutates every year and different strains come and go. A matter of fact, what's, what's kind of interesting is one flu strain was wiped off the face of the earth by our COVID mitigation uh, uh, policies. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so we do not achieve herd immunity to the flu. Uh, mostly because there's so many different strains around. And I, I suppose an analogy could be made between that and COVID. Uh, I'm sure some virologist would, would, would argue with me about uh, that. But the fact that, yeah, that both viruses continue to circulate uh, is, a, is a reasonable comparison. Right. So early on in the pandemic, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. Maybe we thought it was something like measles or anthrax, that herd immunity was possible. So let's try it. Others like you, uh, other um, prominent voices said, given how much we don't know, it's very risky. And actually, 
I think the uh, record shows that those voices, yours included, turned out to be right. But the interesting thing is what uh, Jay Bhattacharya and others who are involved in the Great Barrington Declaration get credit for is worrying about the effects of lockdown. So they got the herd, they got the reasons wrong, but perhaps they got the reasons or their underlying logic for their prescriptions they got wrong. But the idea of limiting lockdowns had so much salience that people signed on to it and think that they're right at this point. So let's talk about that. Um, I think lockdowns before we had a vaccine were totally necessary. And I think that uh, in schools they were necessary. But how come or what do you think about continuing lockdowns and school closures after the vaccine became widely adopted? Yeah, so I don't think that they were unique in worrying about the harms of lockdowns. I think that they sort of make a straw man argument that we are the only ones who worried about the effects of lockdowns. And I'm always very clear when I talk about this, uh, that the same way all of the doctors I discuss were sheltered from the care of COVID patients. They were never next to me in the hospital treating these sick people. I was relatively protected from the harms of lockdowns. I never missed a paycheck. I was never lonely. Uh, my children were out of school for quite some time, but I, I just want to sort of recognize my privilege mm. when I talk about lockdowns and I'm not a small business owner or a restaurant owner who has to pay rent and has to pay employees. Um, so I, I think there's a potential argument to be made that that schools could have opened uh, earlier. I mean, they did in certain states, but there came with consequences. And I, I think the fact that we did a decent job of protecting children at the start of the pandemic was paradoxically used to to then claim that they never needed these protections in the first place. So a lot of doctors say things like more children died of suicide and car crashes than COVID, which is true, but that would not have been the case had we allowed all 73 million children to contract COVID in the spring of 2020 when none of them were vaccinated. Um, and teachers suffered as well. 74 uh, Department of Education employees died here in New York City in the first six weeks of the pandemic. 70 of those 74 worked in schools and 30 of them were teachers. So had nothing been done to control the virus, there would have been more of that. And even after vaccines were available during the Delta wave and during the Omicron wave, the virus overwhelming outbreaks closed schools. So the virus closed schools. That happened just recently in Texas and Kentucky. So it wasn't just overly cautious Democratic governors who kept schools closed. And even when schools were officially open, uh, oftentimes, uh, Parents were asked to work as teachers or the National Guard was uh, called to was, was asked to come in to act as teachers or here in New York City. One of my kids got uh, spent a couple days in the auditorium doing nothing uh, because too many teachers were sick. This was in January 22 when the Omicron wave was spreading and 30 percent of students were absent, even though schools were uh officially open. So I, I, I think sometimes people act as if it was just overly cautious Democratic governors who closed schools too long. And, and maybe they did. Maybe schools could have opened in the spring of 2021, but there, there, there would have been some consequences. And I think we just shouldn't pretend that uh, it would have been totally risk-free. Well, okay, let's not deal with the absolutes. If you were on the advisory committee at the time when there were massive vac when there were vaccines and the vaccines were widely available to anyone who wanted them and there was a big public public campaign to convince people to take them and some states and some cities were opening and some cities were not like our city, New York City, what would you have advised? 
Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, it's easy to sort of look back and sort of say what I would have done. Uh, I, I try not to do that too much just because my book and my writing are really about the fact that in order to make these decisions, we have to have a semblance of shared facts. And doctors like Jay Bhattacharya spread gross misinformation, which precluded these necessary discussions. For example, in the summer of, I think the summer of 2020, or maybe it was 2021, uh, after COVID had killed about, I think it was summer 2021, uh, after COVID had killed about 400 children and the flu had killed one child during that period, he said more children died of flu than died of COVID. So he was saying that the number one is larger than the number 400. And he and many other doctors in the spring of 2021 were saying the pandemic was over, that herd immunity had arrived. He was on a podcast on April 14th, 2021. This was before the Delta variant arrived, that before the Omicron variant arrived. And he said the central problem right now is the fear that so many people still have about COVID. So his biggest worry was that people were trying too hard to avoid the virus. So I think in order to make those, have those discussions, we need a semblance of shared facts. And doctors who said that the flu was more dangerous for kids than COVID or that we had achieved herd immunity, as many doctors did in the spring of 2021, prevented those facts. So listen, it's easy to sit back and sort of speculate, yeah, sure, we should have opened schools in March 2021. It's kind of an interesting theoretical discussion, but but uh, um, I'm not quite sure what value that holds today. Well, okay, let's stipulate Jay Bhattacharya got all of this wrong, and let's just throw out his opinions. There was a legitimate debate. You're very vocal on Twitter. To this point, you talk about the open school bros. I think at the time, from looking at your Twitter feed, you were very skeptical about opening schools, hindsight 2020 and all that. But what about taking into account uh, the best, uh, the best arguments rather than the worst arguments for opening schools? Let us not straw man, let's steel man their argument at the time. Well, first of all, you tell me, Am, am I right? As I look up your public declarations, you were very skeptical about opening schools after the vaccine took up. I don't think so, to be totally honest okay. with you. Maybe, maybe someone can search my old tweets and, and, and find those comments. Uh, what you are, ref- and hopefully not, and if, if, if so, that, 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 then, I'll, then I'll apologize. But um, again, I really have not called for any policies other than I'm extremely pro-vaccine and honesty. So when I, when you talk about these open schools bros, I, I, I will accuse them of being disingenuous for several reasons. I think that there were a lot of doctors who wanted to get the reputation as people who said the words open schools. So in their tweets, in their podcasts, uh, in their editorials, they would write open schools, open schools, open schools, while dunking on every measure that would have helped schools open. So they wrote editorials called Kids Don't Need Vaccines to Return to School. They wrote editorial, and this is, you know, these appeared in mainstream publications, or the harms of masking students are real or the case against testing. So they they dunked on every measure that would have helped schools actually open. And when the virus shut down schools during the Delta wave, during the Omicron wave, again, in red states, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arkansas, et cetera, they said nothing. They just pretended like it didn't happen. As long as they could get the reputation as saying the word open schools, 
that's what they that's what they they wanted. So I refuse to cede the high ground to these doctors because when the virus closed schools, and we'll see what happens again in the 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 the, the you know the upcoming school year, uh, they had nothing to say. So they weren't on the ground. They weren't there. Uh, helping the school, uh, helping schools to to safely open, and they had nothing to say about dead teachers. They had nothing to say about uh, orphaned kids. They had nothing to say about kids who were sick with COVID, or injured by COVID, or killed by COVID, other than to say it was rare or suicide killed more kids. So I think they just wanted the reputation. I. I, I will come out and sort of say it's almost struck me as sort of virtue signaling like how easy is it to just type on twitter open schools and that's all they did okay let's talk about how dangerous the coronavirus covid19 is to children um on an ongoing basis what are the statistics about because the, even these are debated the percentage of kids who died during the coronavirus has been expressed um I read a study and I saw you commenting on it at 0.00003%. There is somewhere around, you do try to be very accurate in your book. It's somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 kids under the age of 18 died of the coronavirus. So first, before we even begin, are those numbers accurate? It, 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 it is a little bit hard to get totally accurate numbers. There are sources of underestimation and there are sources of overestimation. So, for example, with the flu every year, the CDC will publish the raw tally of children who died, usually between two and three hundred. And then they'll do an estimate of the number of children who died, which can yeah. sometimes be double that number. So all of these numbers that I'm going to give are a little bit inexact, but uh, around two thousand children have died of covid so far, which definitely compares to other vaccine preventable diseases. Um, and death is not the only bad outcome. There have been about 10,000 cases of multi-system inflammatory disorder in children, which sends about 80% of children to the ICU. Uh, some children have been severely uh, affected, needing lung transplants, needing amputations, uh, needing mechanical ventilation in the ICU. Uh, overall, uh, tens of thousands, if not uh, over close to 200,000 children have been hospitalized over the course of the pandemic. So it's one of these things that if you, and, and then of course there's long COVID in children as well. I, I kind of feel there's more questions than answers about that. I have a hard time wrapping my head around the numbers of long COVID because you'll read one study, oh, it's, you know, one in 10,000 kids and the other study, it's, you know, 10% of kids. Uh, but some children have been severely uh, affected by long COVID. And I think that we need to be humble about the potential for long-term consequences. There's a strong signal that diabetes is on the rise, type one, the autoimmune type diabetes uh, due to COVID. And a, a newborn who's born today might be infected 10 times by the time they go off to college. And I think we have to be humble about the potential for long-term consequences of that. And just to keep repeating this point, all of these numbers would have been worse had we done nothing and allowed 73 million unvaccinated children to contract COVID in the spring of 2020, as many doctors suggested. The name of the book is We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of COVID. Dr. Jonathan Howard is its author. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the questions.
And now the spiel. Last night was the third Republican debate, and the third one lacking the front runner. Now, you know I believe Donald J. Trump to be a malignant presence that has grown and taken over the host party. You know I regard him to be a carcinogen, not just to the party, but to the country. And yet, while cancer did come up, it was never in the context of Trump. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We a cancer in the Republican establishment. When I'm president of the United States, we're going to call this what it is. It is a disease, like heart disease, diabetes, or any other disease like cancer. Anti-Semitism is a symptom of a deeper cancer in a country and a society that is lost. And we are lost. Vivek Ramaswamy, twice surrounded by Chris Christie, the Chris Christie sandwich. Christie's reference was in the service of compassion. He was talking about opioids. Ramaswamy was more disgust-driven. Ramaswamy is a deeply off-putting candidate and public figure. After tangling nonstop with Nikki Haley over a couple debates, she delivered this appraisal of the man who is running below 5% in Iowa and just above 5% in New Hampshire. You're just the easy answer. Yeah, it seems harsh, but it was actually one of the more temperate utterances of the night. Here's Ron DeSantis's plan as regards fentanyl and the border, or fentanyl at the border. And we're going to authorize the use of deadly force. We're going to have maritime operations to interdict precursor chemicals going into Mexico. But I'll tell you this, if someone in the drug cartels is sneaking fentanyl across the border when I'm president, that's going to be the last thing they do. We're going to shoot them stone cold dead. Please don't. Wrong border, says Ramaswamy, who somewhat baselessly assumed no one else on stage has crossed into Canada. I'm the only candidate on the stage, as far as I'm aware, who has actually visited the northern border. There was enough fentanyl that was captured just on the northern border last year to kill three million Americans. Fact check, there were 14,000 pounds of fentanyl seized in all of the United States last year. At the U.S.-Canadian border of that 14,000 pounds, want to guess how many? 14, 14 pounds. So far this year, two pounds, which by Ramaswamy's math is enough to kill half a million people. And let that be a tip for you. You will often hear about fentanyl seizures and this amount of fentanyl is enough to kill X million people. You hear that math. Well, the math is this, a pound of fentanyl, they say, can kill a million people. Can it really? Who knows? Sounds good in a press release. It does mean that the amount of fentanyl seized in the United States last year is enough to kill 3 billion Americans, which, since there are only 3.3 million Americans, raises questions. Does it include people brought back by Narcan only to die again of overdoses? Do we got to keep administering the fentanyl once everyone in America dies? Who's in charge of that? Does it imply that once all the Americans are dead of fentanyl, there'll be no one to staff the border and will be overrun by the entire population of Mexico, Central America, and South America, and they will all die of fentanyl, but that still leaves about 2 billion lethal doses left. I hope the Europeans will learn from everyone in this hemisphere's example. So actually, technically, what Ramaswamy was saying wasn't a lie, but this from Ron DeSantis, I think technically was. You have Jewish students fleeing for their lives at Cooper Union. If by fleeing for their lives, he means these kids went into a library and locked the doors behind them. Yes, that's what happened. It was unpleasant, for sure, but no one's life was in danger. The NYPD said so. My, my son actually didn't participate, but he went over to that demonstration. He said, you know, seemed impassioned, didn't seem unsafe. Let us not 
catastrophize and overstate things. Oh, sorry, it's a political debate that is impossible. It has celebrated a Nazi in its ranks, the comedian in cargo pants, a man called Zelensky, doing it in their own ranks. That is not democratic. So if that's a problem, why does Vivek go on the Steve Bannon podcast? I guess all the shirts counteracts the pants. The debate wasn't all nonsense, though with Trump enjoying huge leads in the polls, it might be without much consequence. But we do have to say, Nikki Haley, by consensus, has won all three debates, and she is now in second place in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, where she's from. Tim Scott is also from South Carolina, and I mention him only to mention him. He is a person also running for president, and he was on stage last night. He didn't say much that was memorable, but again, Ramaswamy did, and look at the credibility that brought him. I do not want to give the impression that there was nothing of substance or civic value discussed. The candidates actually offered somewhat nuanced positions on the retirement age for Social Security, and they all brushed off Ramaswamy's isolationism and challenged Trump's wobbly stance on Ukraine. That, by the way, I think should be the right policy. I don't know how popular it will be with Republican voters. The next debate is scheduled for December 6th in Alabama. Chris LaCivita, Trump's spokesman, says the former president will not be at any debates until he is. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>